Welcome to episode 128 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is retired General Carol Eager. Carol is a combat veteran, a Purple Heart recipient, and she served both on active duty and in the National Guard. And I loved hearing her story because she's so open and honest about her experience in the military. And she talks about how hard it was to be a mom and to leave behind her kids, especially as they got older and more aware of what their mom was doing and how she was in harm's way. But now that she's retired and she's asked her children, do you regret mom being in the military and having to leave for various things? And they talk about how awesome it is to have a mom who is a retired general. And I really loved hearing that perspective of a mom whose kids are grown and how they can see how much of an impact their mom had while serving in the military. I know I normally don't tell stories at the beginning, but last Veterans Day, my son and I were talking about veterans and I mentioned that his dad would be a veteran when he got out of the military and my son was shocked because he was under the impression that only women were veterans because he knew that his mom was a veteran and I went to his school and I talked about my service and so he just hadn't quite grasped the concept that his dad was in the military and would be leaving the military and be a veteran one day too. So I just think the role of mom serving in the military and even though I left when my son was born my son knows about my service. And so it just shows how important it is to talk about our experiences and how we can have an impact on our children even after we've left the military behind. So now that that story's out of the way, I'm excited to get started with this interview. It's a good one. And if you are listening on the Women in the Military podcast and you want to see me and Carol chatting, you can go over to the Women of the Military YouTube channel because I recorded this interview. And so you can see us and not just hear us if that's something you want to do. So I'll leave a link to that in the show notes if you want to go check it out. And you can catch all the videos of Women of the Military on YouTube now as well. So let's get started. You're listening to Season 3 of the Women of the Military Podcast. Here you will find the real stories of female service members. I'm Amanda Huffman. I am an Air Force veteran, military spouse, and mom. I created Women of the Military podcast in 2019 as a place to share the stories of female service members past and present with the goal of finding the heart of the story while uncovering the triumphs and challenges women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. podcast run by a a woman. This week, I'm highlighting the Spouse Angle podcast. The Spouse Angle is run by Natalie Gross. She is a military child, and she wanted to use her journalism skills to help keep military spouses informed on topics and current events that are happening within the military spouse community. As a military spouse, I really enjoy listening to her podcast and the topics that she covers. She just has a really good way of getting to the heart of the issue quickly and to give you information more than just the news headlines, but why this news matters to you and why it's important to you. 
And if you've listened to the podcast for a while, you'll have recognized the Spouse Angle podcast because I mention it pretty often because a lot of times the topics she covers cross over and intersect with the conversation. So I highly recommend going to check it out. And now let's get started with this week's guest, retired General Carol Egert. Hello, Carol. I'm excited to have both a combat veteran and Purple Heart recipient and Brigadier General retired to be on the podcast. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Amanda. And I'm thrilled to be on the show with you. I've read your book and I'm a fan of anyone who's willing to tell the stories of women. I think too long women have stayed in the shadow, partly because of systemic issues, but then also because I think women don't, I often say, don't take their rightful place in the warrior ethos. So anything we can do to encourage women to acknowledge their service, to learn from their service, to share what they've learned from their service, and then also to use their VA benefits. You know, other than the GI Bill, women tend to use their their uh, benefits much less than men. And I think you and I may both know why you walk into a, a VA. In the old days, I don't think it's that way now. I mean, it's not that way now. You know, people would say, where's your husband or who's the sponsor? So I think there's been challenges. So I'm just thrilled. So I want to thank you first for what you're doing to get women's stories out there. That's certainly one of my passions. So thrilled to be here. And I I will comment. I'm sorry. I will comment. You know, you said I'm a combat veteran Purple Heart recipient. One thing I want to clarify about that is that anybody who raises their hand has acknowledged that they are willing to die for their country or to get injured for their country. So nobody wants to, but it just means you're willing to. But I respect everybody who has uh, raised their hand because they're willing to do exactly that. And I think so often because of the misconceptions about women in combat, people don't understand that women get injured in combat. So that's my spiel on uh, Purple Heart. And also when you say uh, Brigadier General, I got to be clear, I started as an enlisted person. My enlisted uh, time certainly was formative and transformative for me. So when people hear I'm a general, I think sometimes they close their ears. But keep in mind, I was enlisted for almost 12 years, 11 years. So there's a lot of story there. So thank you for having me. I look forward to talking with you. Yeah. And I heard you speak at the Women Veteran Interactive event in November of 2019. And it was just so interesting to hear your story. And you opened with the fact that you enlisted. So let's talk a little bit about why you decided to join the military. You know, that's a question so many people ask. And once again, there's a lot of myths around that, that young people join the military because they have no other choice, uh, especially as an enlisted soldier. But there's a great organization called Our Community Salutes that tries to recognize those who choose service rather than going straight into college or some other path. So for me, I joined in 1972 when it was the Women's Army Corps. And I specifically joined in my head. This is what I thought was to get the GI Bill. Came from a family of eight kids and, you know, college was expected or I just assumed it was always expected. I always wanted to go to college, but where do you get the money? I didn't want to go to, I love the University of Delaware, but I didn't want to go where all the other brothers and sisters went. And so I said, I'm going to do something different. But of course I had no money. So I joined the Women's Army Corps Band. I joined at 17 and my parents had to sign for me. And the story there is my father said, nice girls don't join the military. And I think had it not been the band, he might not have signed. But I think he figured, okay, that's okay. But actually, he came to be one of my strongest supporters. 
and understanding the role of women in the military. So just thrilled that I joined then. It certainly set my path. Hats off to anyone who makes that decision. I think sometimes when I meet women and they're like, well, my story, it's not that important. But I believe everyone who joins the military, like you said, we sign up to to give our life and we just go where the military tells us to do go. And that's what dictates our story. And so we all have a story to share. And it's so important to share those stories. Amanda, I, I totally agree. And that's also common with men who didn't go to combat. They'll say, oh, I only served in peacetime. Or the women will say, oh, I didn't do anything exciting. But every story matters. And the whole idea of our strategic security is deterrence. So anybody that joins is contributing to peace through deterrence. And whether you served in combat or not doesn't change anything. And as a matter of fact, all of us would like to not have served in combat. That's the whole point. Let's keep the world uh, safe and peaceful. Yeah. So let's talk about why you decided to switch. You said you were enlisted for 12 years and then you became an officer. So why did you decide to make that transition over to the officer corps? Well, I I think there's a big gap there, almost 11 years. Right. I was an E6, about to be promoted to E7. And I was a recruiter in Chester, Pennsylvania, one of the most poverty-stricken cities near Philadelphia. And I can't tell you how meaningful that experience was. Although I don't believe in a society that pretty much says the only way out of poverty is to join the military. But in fact, that was the case for many of those people in in Chester. And just to be able to help with that and see that I was breaking that cycle of poverty and changing lives, the military can do that, just was, just was a, a, a very significant moment. And at that time I said, well, I think I can do more. So I don't think you become, well, I definitely did not become an officer for, you know, recognition, for perks, for all the things people sometimes think you become an officer for. I went to OCS because I thought I had more to give, that there were ways I could give back. And certainly after joining the Women's Army Corps and seeing that journey of the role of women in the military, I mean, you know, back then I'm a recruiter, there were so many fields women couldn't go into. And you saw the promotion of men and you saw just, you know, some of the subtle thoughts around women in the military, something as simple as a PT test and you won't be able to do that. And, and so I thought, you know, I can contribute to maybe changing this culture. So that's why I went to officer candidate school and never looked back. But I value that enlisted time because I served under good leaders and bad leaders. And I think you often learn the most from the bad leaders and say, don't let me ever get like that. That's why I said, I think I learned quite a bit and I also understand the critical role of non-commissioned officers. They pretty much run the place. I would often joke that I'm just the blame line. I'm the blame line and I'm willing to take it, but it's really the NCOs that are the heart of our core. So that's why I went to officer candidate school to be able to offer more. And I'll give a piece of advice to all women out there. If you're seeking, people talk about seeking promotion or a new position, Go at it from the point of, I have something to offer. I have a contribution I can make, not I want a promotion. That that just doesn't cut it. What can you give? Yeah, I think in so many things, 
when you're giving back to the community or giving back to people that you care about, that's the passion that drives you. And that's what people see. I mean, that's why I have the podcast. It's because I'm passionate about telling stories. It's not about me and elevating me. It's about elevating other women. And so that passion drives you and it's what makes a big difference. Yeah. And, and that's so true. And I think, I think we can all tell the difference. Someone who's out for it for themselves and someone who is in it for a greater cause. Now, I mean, I'll go back to why I joined. I, I do have to acknowledge that I think many people, when they join, they don't understand the bigger cause or something larger than themselves or uh, I want to contribute to you know the nation. For me, it was the GI Bill. But I think you stay because you understand the role in a bigger picture and how you can contribute to that. Not, not saying that anybody that puts their time in and decides to leave, that's just as important. But I think many young people go in because they see the benefits of that, but I think they stay because they're contributing to something larger than themselves. And I think that pretty much happened to me in the later years as, a, as an NCO. Yeah, I'm working on a book called The Girl's Guide to the Military that I'm about halfway done writing. And the opening chapter is about why you join. And one of the things that I talk about is the reason that you join might be because of the GI Bill or other benefits that you can get. But the reason you stay is often about that service. So it's interesting to hear you say back what I've been writing on the computer and wondering, am I crazy for writing this? I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. And there's nothing to be ashamed of that that's why you joined. You get something you need, you know, just embrace that. That's so true. So you made the switch to being an officer and that was in 85, right? I think it was. I was commissioned in 85. And so from 85 to the 90s, what was the military like before Desert Storm happened? And was there anything that stood out from your career that you want to talk about? Well, I tend to think women's stories are complicated, not to say men's aren't, but, you know, when you throw in child rearing and pregnancy, there's so many variables in your life. So during that time, after I was commissioned, I was in the National Guard. And I used that time to finish my degree, a story like so many. I got out of the service active duty and went to college and I didn't finish. That's a whole nother story. And came back and knew that I had to finish. I just, I couldn't have that example for my children. At the point, I, I only had one child. So I finished my degree and I'll never forget my daughter was in the audience when I graduated. And she said, that's my mom. And that was more valuable than the degree. But just to finish, I think is so critical. Don't leave those things hanging out there unless you have a really good reason. So I use that time for that. And then also later to get a master's degree, I think combining taking care of children and getting your school knocked out is a nice combination and then being in the guard. And of course, think of it. Here I am, a lieutenant in the guard. I chose to become a maintenance officer because I said, don't give me a girl branch. No disrespect for the girl branches. I knew the opportunities for me just probably wouldn't be there. So I became a maintenance officer, one of the first in the state. And imagine the challenges. One of the first things I did with the maintenance company was, uh, as as the commander, was to get them to take down all the snap-on calendars. Do you remember the snap-on calendars? The women in, you know, sexy garb standing by the, you know, the tool trucks and that sort of thing. And it, it just wasn't right. We had females in the unit. And so that didn't necessarily endear me to the pretty much all-male company. 
So that, picture those challenges. And also, as a lieutenant, it's it's just common that, you know, you have to earn your way in. I will say that just about everybody accepted who you are as long as you earn your way. No different than the men, maybe a little bit tougher, but you better know what you're doing. But then women tend to hold themselves to such a high standard that usually you do. But then when I became a commander, I think Amanda, I mentioned that I was pregnant, but we didn't let anybody know. So picture, here I am, a maintenance company commander, one of the first, I think the first in the state, and I'm pregnant. So not only did they have to get used to a female commander, here I am, I'm pregnant. At the time, it wasn't really obvious, but certainly it got that way. And and so there are lots of challenges there, and I'm sure it's very similar to many people's stories, other than mine being so early, the culture has changed. And, and I'll be glad to talk about some of those cultural changes that I had to work through, that women today don't have those roadblocks. And I hope they always remember those women who came before them and had to, you know, had to knock down some of those obstacles. And I think sometimes our, our younger women are missing that. I, I've talked to young women who don't know what the WAC Corps was. Yeah, I certainly didn't know my women's history in the military before I started the podcast. And that's a shame because I was in for six years and I'd never, I didn't even know about the WASP, like the Air Force, the WASP. And I had no idea until I did my podcast and interviewed a granddaughter of the WASP and she shared her grandmother's story. And I was like, how did I not know about these people? I, I don't know. You know how in the military we do so much around training and culture and history. I, I don't think we've, until recently, included women in that history. I think that's changing with her story and some of the other um, initiatives and, and the men seeing that it matters. Uh, but yeah, it can be a, a challenge. An example would be when I was a commander and you know had I had an infant and I was nursing. And so when I would go off to duty, I'd have to pump. You know, but where do you go? It's not like we had lactation rooms then, or it's not like you could put it in the refrigerator. People would be so freaked out. They're just freaked out with the thought that you went into the bathroom, which is a terrible place to have to pump, because anywhere else, somebody would probably walk in on you. So those challenges of just being a mother and a parent, I think were hard on both men and women. And I think that has drastically changed now. And I think you... You asked me about uh, the 90s. What, were, what was it you were going to ask me, Amanda? Well, when we were talking before I hit record, we were talking about Desert Storm and how when you had a six-week-old six when Desert Storm kicked off and you had some challenges. So let's talk about that. Well, that's another example of how the culture has changed. So Desert Storm won a maintenance company commander, and of course the thought is they're going to deploy and we did come up on the list to deploy. And yes, I had a six-week-old baby. I don't even know if it was six. And there were some that thought I should be taken out of command because I wouldn't go. Not so much that I couldn't do it, but that there's just no way I would go, even though that was, and I knew, that was the policy at the time. Six weeks, if you can imagine how absurd that is. And now, what is it, 12, three months? And then six months before you deploy? I'm not sure what the current policy is, but I know it's not six weeks. And one of my challenges, I said, of course, I will go and do what I need to do. But I was I was sick to my stomach at the thought I would have done it because that's your obligation. But here I had this six week old. I didn't know whether to stop nursing, keep nursing. How would I transition? You know, you got to leave 
the next week, how do you stop nursing a baby so you can leave? And just what's the thought of leaving a little six-week-old baby? So when, when that policy changed, I understood what a difference that made for so many women. Because at, from that point on, we were deploying all the time. Women were deploying and, and with young young babies. And how tough is that on men to leave a family like that? So great strides we've made when it comes to women and military families and having to live through it. It's just um, so comforting to see the changes. And I often say that I'm glad I stayed in. I actually was still in the military when we changed and opened all branches to military. And I always say I am so glad I was still in when that happened. And also to LGBTQ, um, you know, get rid of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So I saw what I consider to be incredible achievements for the military. A lot of it had to do with our secretaries of defense. They were pretty um, progressive. Secretary Gates, um, Mullen. Yeah, it's interesting that in the time that you joined the military, how much the military changed in just one career. And it gives me even more hope for the future for how the military can change and to change the culture around military sexual trauma and some of the issues that they're facing now when we went from like most jobs weren't open to women to now all jobs are open and and the role of women is changing and we're hearing the history of women. Yes, and I think that's critical for the story and for progress. Unless we all understand what the challenges were and are, I think I think our uh, policymakers are much more attuned to the challenges of military families, both men and women, dual dual couples, just military families moving, pregnancy. It, it, I'll touch on you mentioned all all fields being open to women, being open by policy and being open by culture are two different things. And that's been a long journey. I see progress there. We're not there yet. And especially in the newer fields that just opened, talk about artillery and infantry and special forces, just hearing the policymakers on whether or not that was appropriate, you know, hearing the Joint Chiefs talk about, well, women can't do that. That was tough to see, but it's heartening to note the changes. I don't know about you, Amanda, but I was thrilled when our women got through the Ranger School. That, that was like a, a victory for all of us. So changes, definitely. Yeah, actually, when they announced the change in 2013 that they were like considering having women in all fields, someone asked me, are you going to get out of the military now that you can go in combat? And I was like, well, I already have a combat action medal. So, you know, been there, done that. <laughs> and so it was eye opening to me that she was some, she was a civilian working for the Air Force. And she thought because I was a woman, I couldn't be in combat. And I was like, no, that was three years ago when I deployed and I was with the Army running convoys. Women are already in combat. That's why the rules are changing. Not not because the military had this great idea to now finally allow women into And I'll give some credit to the military. Many people don't know the congressional history of women in the military. Much of the policy came from Congress, who said, you know, that would be the end of our society if we started having deaths in combat and who would have the babies. And um, a matter of fact, I wrote my war college uh, dissertation on that subject. What's this firestorm all about? You know, what are the facts? And much of it was Congress. And I'll give credit to the Joint Chiefs. You know, they fought Congress on we need them. And as a matter of fact, just like you said, Amanda, women were already in combat. It's not a front and a rear anymore. It's a 360 degree battlefield. And so we all know that. But at the time, certainly civilians didn't know that. And I'm not sure all of them do now. I think there is a pretty significant civilian military divide. 
and and that's why I think it's important for women to tell their story, to say, I'm a combat veteran. Yes, I was injured in combat. This is what it meant. Yes, I had babies during service. Yes, I nursed the babies. But if we don't tell them, people will not understand. So keep telling your story and keep doing what you're doing. I think it's just amazing. So let's talk about, you said that you did go on deployments in the 90s and you had to leave your your small children behind. So what was that experience like and where were you going and what were you doing? So at the time in the 90s, I was still in the guard, but I took many additional tours. You know, they needed somebody to be able to, to go, you know, support different units. So one thing I did is I went to Aberdeen for a significant length of time to help write the curriculum for the changeover from from uh, maintenance to logistics. So because I had my master's in instructional design, so they used my knowledge there. So that was great. It wasn't a deployment, but it was certainly active duty. And we did uh, many other short-term deployments. I participated in a NATO exercise in Lithuania. That's a funny story. Can I tell you a story about that? So uh, I'm the senior officer there representing the United States for a NATO exercise. And of course, the commander in the Lithuanian army invited us all for lunch. So it's me, one woman, and all the men. And I was a colonel or a lieutenant colonel. Can't remember. We're all having lunch. And I couldn't figure out why why everybody's just sitting there. And I think you know, Amanda, the protocol is you don't eat until the host or certainly the general starts to eat. But nobody's eating. They're just sitting there. And it was so awkward, you know, making... And finally, I moved my hand just a little bit. I moved my hand, and then they all grabbed their forks. So the culture was, you don't eat until the woman at the table eats. But, of course, I was following military protocol, but I had no idea. And so here I was being seen as a woman, not as a military officer, subordinate to the general in charge. And I I chuckled because it never occurred to me that's what was going on. And afterwards, I, I kept it to myself, but... It made me realize you have to be really aware of, of cultural differences. Although I think the same thing might have happened in the U.S. military, but probably not by that point. Anyway, that's a that's a funny story. Also deployed to Nicaragua to do civil support missions. And, you know, you say you leave your family. Yes, they were, the kids were little, two to six, somewhere in there. Personally, I think it was really good for my family. My husband, he became you know, a significant parent, which I don't know that all that that is common back then, but, you know, he had to and he loved it. And the kids looked at him as a primary caregiver also, because so often he was the one in charge. And I think they came to to see that as just normal. And it was always so weird when I had friends that said, oh, my husband has to babysit. And I would say, wait a second, how does a husband babysit? It's their own kids. You know, they don't have to babysit. They have to parent. And so it's just that thought about the role of men. And Amanda, just hearing you talk about your husband watching your children now, and those things are so different in the American culture. And I think the military pushed that along. And I I think the military is is a leader when it comes to social change. Yeah, I agree with that. That's really interesting how he had to take Control and I think and your kids thought it was normal, just like my kids think it's normal to move every couple of years. And that's just our life because that's their normal and they don't know anything different. Yeah. And he certainly never pushed back on that. You know, I think to have family support is critical. You know, when we got married, we got married in 1982 and I didn't change my name. Just think about it, Amanda, all those uniforms you'd have to change the name tags on. 
and you know the military would lose all your records. So I said, absolutely not. I'm not changing my name. You know, so from the beginning, our concept of an equal relationship started there. My husband, Fran, is an electrical engineer with Honeywell. He just recently retired. So that's kind of nice. While I work, he'll make me lunch. So that's kind of nice. But um, yeah, so lot, lots of challenges there on on leaving your family and how that's looked at. You know, I once asked my children, you know, do you wish I'd been home with you more rather than be in the military? And they all said, no, mom, it's way cooler to have a mom in the military and tell the stories than just a mom that maybe brings us cupcakes. So I felt so much better then that the examples you're giving them are valued and kind of outshadow the guilt. I don't think there's a parent out there that doesn't feel guilty when they leave their kid or when they miss, miss the birthday or you know some other significant event. But I think the example you're giving your children, both your, your uh, male and female children, is really, really important. And to hear uh, adult children tell you that is really important, I think. So yeah. ask your kids that sometime. Hey, what do you think? You know, and I think you'd be surprised at the answer. My uh, oldest only thinks women are veterans, which I think is awesome because <gasps> my husband's active duty and he doesn't realize that he's going to be a veteran someday. And he was like, boys can be veterans too, last Veterans Day. And I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. That's cute. That's a good one. What a switch, right? Yeah. So um, you were in when September 11th happened. Well, you were in long after. But let's talk about how September 11th changed the military. Well, that certainly started a cycle of deployments. Um, I was in the Guard at the time and certainly willing to go do anything I needed to do. And I think it was a wake-up call for the Guard and Reserve. You know, those people that said, I didn't sign up for this. I, I think it's despicable. Everybody knew that's was the, the, the purpose of the Guard is to be a, a reserve force and the country needed you at that point. But policies weren't keeping up with that. We were always thought of as a strategic force that only when the Russians came across the Bering Strait would we be activated. But you knew in the back of your mind that's exactly what you were there for. So I, I lost total respect for anybody that got out then because they might deploy. So I think the op-tempo changed drastically, and you saw it was a, a significant test of character. Those who were willing to stay in and do whatever was asked from them and those who got out and said, I'm not staying in the Guard, I might get mobilized. And I was ashamed that that came to be, and but very proud of those who did what they needed to do. And the Guard... Their performance was amazing. They came to be part of the total army. So it really changed policy on the use of the Guard and Reserve. And I think Guard units prove themselves. They prove themselves that they, in fact, can be counted on and are trained to do what needs to be done. Pennsylvania was one of the most deployed states. We lost plenty of soldiers. You know, we saw that pain. We saw our families suffer. So, yeah, uh, a big change after that, especially for the Guard, but I think also for the total force, because they we had to change our policies and recognize that we are no longer a strategic reserve, but we were an operational reserve, and people needed to be ready, equipment needed to be ready, policies needed to be ready. We needed to address the issues with women and and deployment and what's their role. So, and we also saw at that time, and Mandy, I'm sure you know this history. 
you know, so we have women in maintenance units, women in medical units, women in supply units. As I said, it's a 360 battlefield. There's no rear. So it's not like the women could stay in the rear like World War II. It's they had to be out supporting the the fighters, the, the force. And so they were right out there with them. However, policy didn't allow them to be assigned to those units. They had to be attached. And there was the most ridiculous policy that they couldn't be out there for longer than 30 days. So those commanders that really needed those women and those uh, skills would send them back to the headquarters for a couple of days so they could come back out and start their 30 days. Now, I once heard a general, and I can't remember which one when I was at the War College, say that, you know, that policy made liars out of our commanders because they had to work around the policy. So I think that had a lot to do with changing policy because that was the role of women. And and I certainly saw it in our maintenance battalion, time as the battalion commander, those units were attached to the units they supported, those um, teams. Yeah, and I even talked to one medic who was deployed to Iraq, and because she wasn't allowed to be in combat, she didn't get her combat action badge or any of the medals that that were required for being in combat. And so even the records that go back in history don't have the records of women in combat because commanders didn't give. That's an interesting thing. I'd have to look into that because I don't know there was any policy that said they couldn't be. Probably those commanders were sort of afraid to do that because I certainly received a combat action badge before women were in all branches. So in 2010, you know, what was the policy in 2010? weren't in all branches, but they did finally change the uh, women in combat rules. So that that's really unfortunate. That's something, I'm glad you brought that up because I'm going to research that now. Just like we're going back and uh, looking at the discharges of LGBTQ and whether or not they were appropriate and how to change those discharge status. So maybe we need to do the same thing with women who served in that time period. Yeah, that's true. So let's talk about your deployment to Iraq. You went to Iraq, and this time when you deployed, your kids were not in that two- to six-year range because they grew up. So what was the experience like for you as a mom having older kids while you were deployed? Let me touch on why I did. So I was in the Guard at the time, and they were looking, you know, there weren't a lot of colonels available. And so the Michigan National Guard needed a 06 to be a liaison with the State Department. And I was asked if I would do that. And as I told you, I don't think you ever say no when you're asked. I mean, unless you have a really good reason. And of course, how could I say no when everybody's doing what they need to do? So, you know, I went up to Michigan, met with the commander and and said, yes, I'll do this. So I deployed as what they call an augmentee. I wasn't with a unit. I was sort of alone. I was with that unit, but it's not like I knew anyone or I had the support of a unit, so to speak, but I was still honored to do it. And you're right. My kids were in college. And in a way, that was really good because they knew what I was doing. I didn't have to worry about them. But what I found is it was almost more challenging because they understood too much. They watched the news. They knew the risks. And we're so connected now on a, on a mature battlefield, which certainly Iraq in 2010 was that we had internet connections, we could Skype, you know, so they would get nervous if I wasn't back to my chew to Skype, as we might do as scheduled. And because I traveled a lot, constantly outside of the wire. So if I didn't come back, they'd be a wreck, especially my daughter. She was 
a senior in college, I think, or almost. Anyway, so I think it's challenging with older kids, just like it is with younger kids, but it's totally different challenges. And I think you have to acknowledge those. But then also, I think kids become your greatest supporters and they understand what you're doing and they're proud of what you're doing. And, you know, they, they send you things. They stay in touch. It's not like they just disappear. My son wrote the most amazing song at Christmas about, you know, Christmas in my heart. Since you're not here, you're being my heart over Christmas. He, he, he's a musician. And so he wrote that song. And it's just like that meant the world to me. He remembered I wasn't there. So that was good. I, you'll chuckle at this. You know, the United Through Reading program at the USO, you'd go there and you'd record books for your kids and then send them home. So I did that for my college kids. I went and recorded the books we read as when they were children. And it was so cool. And they treasure them today. And someday when there's grandchildren or whatever, they'll, they'll have that that memory. And, and I'm so grateful through the United Through Reading program that they had that. I, I could just see, I'm guessing you might have done it for your younger kids. So just great programs of support out there. If I can touch on, Amanda, what's it like to transition out of combat in the role of children or young adults? As I said, my kids are in college and they knew I was injured. I didn't come home, but they knew I was injured. And my daughter, who was a senior in college, really held the family together. I think my husband was a little too thrown to kind of pull everybody together, but she did and and God got us all through it and, you know, kept us in touch when we had leave, you know, our R&R, there's no way I could come home. I was sure I'd go AWOL and never go back. So we met in Germany. But that was even hard. And I'm sure you remember this, just having to talk to people. Oh, my God, just leave me alone. Uh, so that was a challenge. And I'm sure many other people deployed feel those same challenges. So, But when I transitioned out my uh, came home, my daughter helped me. I was pretty screwed up, Amanda. I don't know about you, but after, you know, being in rocket attacks and, and IEDs and all that sort of thing. I'm not sure why I was messed up, but I was pretty messed up when I came home. And I didn't think I was. I didn't think I was until I got home. And I, you know, all you want to do is get out of there. So when they're taking you through your um, redeployment process, oh, everything's fine. I don't have any problems. Just send me home. You don't admit anything or you'll get stuck in the warrior training unit. So my daughter really helped me. She graduated from college and I, I didn't go. I had, I had orders to start at the war college as a professor, but I just wasn't ready. And so I got home in June and until September, my daughter and I did nothing but train for a marathon. She took, you know, she graduated from college, so she was home and trained for a marathon, read books. And that time together really helped me. And being wellness and physical fitness really helps with transition. So I would encourage everybody to keep your health and wellness you know, in, in check, make sure you're doing that because that will help with any of these mental challenges that we have. Amanda, I, I talked to you about the challenges with family when you deploy, which I don't know is all that unusual for many of the women listening to this. But one thing I was lucky enough to do when I was in Iraq, my job was to work with the Women's Initiatives Division. So part of what the State Department was doing is making sure Iraqi women were supported. Hillary Clinton had the had the policy that you will not stabilize a country if you don't stabilize families. And so often it's the woman who takes that role. And so I got to work between the State Department and the, and the U.S. forces to ensure we had programs in place to help women succeed. So uh, work, I worked with the Japanese embassy to 
bring in um, honey making bees. Honey is so prevalent that women who set up beehives and bee industry could really survive and, and bring income into their family. Another thing we did was a fish hatchery that women could run, hydroponic uh, gardening. I was just so proud to be able to work with Iraqi women. But one thing I will say, when when um, <clears throat> the U.S. in transition, the transition team put the requirement that as the new vote came out, that women had to be 30% of the Iraqi Congress. Not that they called it the Congress, but, uh, and I had to chuckle because we weren't even 30% of our own Congress. So I wasn't quite sure how they came up with that number. But what I saw happening was women would run for, for those positions, but they would run as a proxy. It was obvious the male was running the scene. The male behind them was really the one running and the women were just out there to say, okay, we're going to fill those positions. And so I guess my caution is to everybody, don't ever be a proxy for anybody, you know, stand on your own own skills. So that was a little disappointing. But one thing that was incredibly inspirational was seeing people travel miles and miles to vote despite threat to their own life life and um, threat to their families. You know, people so proudly would hold up those blue fingers to say they voted. So I know when I think about our democracy and how messy it is, I think about that and, and how and how important it is to support democracy. So I'm always a, I'm always a uh, proponent of, you know, democracy is messy, but it's the best choice. Yeah, and it's really interesting what you talked about the women and building their um, livelihood. I support a lot of women internationally through a micro lending through Kiva. And I always give to women because I've done a lot of research that when you give women money, they use it for their families and they can change the whole community. And so it's really cool that you got to do that in Iraq. It sounds so and I, I understand you did too, Amanda, that we were both with the provincial reconstruction teams. So I would fly out to every one of the PRTs and just work with them on their connection with the State Department and their connection with U.S. forces so that we didn't cross wires on what needed to be done. What I thought was odd is that the military had all the money, but the State Department had the policy and the relationships and knew what needed to be done with the money. And so there, that wasn't always connected appropriately. So my job was to help ensure we were all aligned. And, and what, what, a great, what a great experience that was. I'm so happy I could work with women in Iraq. Yeah, it sounds so fascinating. And thank you for what you did when you deployed those PRTs. That wasn't easy to be out there in the middle of nowhere, and especially as a woman in an Iraqi culture. Yeah, I was in Afghanistan, but, you know, same, similar same culture. Thing. Yeah, that's right. You were in Afghanistan. Yeah, same same mission. Yeah, yeah. the PRTs were the same in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. It wasn't what I expected when I joined the military, that's for sure, but... It, it changed my life, and it's it's one of the main reasons that I give to Kiva because I feel that women, I saw the women, I saw them out in the field. I even met with some women and got to um, have conversations and hear about their struggles, and they always were focused on their families, and so it just inspires me to continue to give back. Well, I was just thinking about when I came back, I already mentioned my daughter supporting me as I got my feet back under me, and how important the VA was. As a matter of fact, I just got my vaccine from the VA yesterday. 
I am a supporter of the VA. I think they, like the Army and the military, have come such a long way. I've opened several women's clinics in the VA. You know, they don't treat you like you're just the spouse or the sponsor of the male that's with you. So I, I've just seen big changes, and I'm, I'm thrilled that I saw those changes. And, and I still use the VA for medical care because they're easier than going to your personal doctor. Anybody out there, get registered with the VA. You never know when you might need them. And just to be on their registry is important. So is there anything else from your time in the military? Oh, we didn't talk about you getting selected to be a general. Do you want to talk about that? I think when we talk about promotions, I think I touched on, I never went to OCS or joined the military and said, someday I'll be a general. I don't think that's the way to think. I just always looked for new opportunities to give back, to do something different. You know, the, the War College needed some women combat veterans on their staff. It was pretty male dominated, very male dominated. And so when asked to do that, of course, the answer is yes. And so what an incredible experience that was to teach and learn about national security strategy and work with all those smart lieutenant colonels, at the Army War College. So I don't, I don't think it's about I want to be a general. It's about what can you give to the organization and always look for new ways to do that and give it your best. And so I think that and I will acknowledge as you move up in rank, it's all about skill for sure, but then also luck and timing. You know, is the timing right? There might not have been a position at some other time. So it's not like those who become senior officers. It's all about skill and capability, so much of it as that pyramid gets tighter and tighter is about timing and luck. But I've often told women, be ready for the next step before you need to be. Imagine if I had somebody come to me and said, hey, we'd like to put you into Congress for promotion to to a general officer. And I didn't have a, a master's degree or some requirement that was needed. I just, I just think you always Education is critical. Lifelong learning is critical. Staying in shape, you know, something as simple as not passing a PT test would have would have um, sabotaged that entire nomination. So always do what you can ahead of time. I was surprised once I needed to fill an 06 position, the colonel position, and there were so many lieutenant colonels that couldn't be promoted because they hadn't finished their schooling. I'm thinking, what is wrong with this picture? I, I was just shocked. Granted, there's never a good time to go to school or to do something that needs to be done. So Advice to all women out there, do what you need to do ahead of time. Always, always seek to learn. And I hate to say be all you can be, but that's pretty much what I mean. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting that you said luck and timing, because a lot of my senior leader officers and enlisted members, they mentioned I was in the right place at the right time and the job opened and I had my stuff together. So that's like right. You have everything. to be ready and you have to have an idea of what you can do. So, and also, I mean, let's, let's be clear. There are, by taking those, what do we call them in the military? Broadening assignments, being willing to step out of, I hate to say this too, your comfort zone and take on a different assignment. You know, all those things add up. And so it's being willing to learn all the time and take the challenges that get thrown in front of you, but that won't happen if you're not prepared. So let's talk about your transition and what you're doing today, because you're still giving back. You have a new role and you're not in the military, but you're still giving back to the veteran and military community. So let's talk about that. Well, thanks for bringing that up. I, I think, well, I've read studies that veterans participate in their communities at a, a more prevalent degree than civilians do, which I'm sure to you and I 
are not is not exciting. I mean, is not surprising. And I had that same desire. You know, I retired out of the military, so there wasn't a financial need. I acknowledge that many people, when they get out, they have to keep working. And I wanted to keep working, but I didn't need to keep working. So there's a big difference. You got a lot more options when you want rather than need. And I was working. I I got out like January, December, and I just worked with some nonprofits and uh, our, our food banks. I understood about food insecurity. And then I got, you know, I got contacted by Comcast about a position because people tend to know who's in the neighborhood. And I had reached out and said, if you need a woman to, to do some speaking engagements, I'd be glad to do that. You know, no charge, just because I knew that I was an example to other women. And so they asked me if I would help them set up a military engagement strategy and team. Once again, when somebody asks you to do something, I think most veterans say, yes, you know, if that's what you need, I'll be glad to do it. And so I did. And so I became full-time with Comcast in September. And I haven't looked back since that this team wasn't in place. The things we have done in military engagement to support the military community is, I think, incredible. And it's all because Comcast and NBC Universal, they truly are committed. It's not just, it's not just, um, you know, it's action. They put their words into action. It's not just saying something. So the first one was hiring veterans, military spouses, understanding the Guard and Reserve. Before we could do that, there was so much of that civilian military divide you had to narrow. So the people understood, what is a veteran? What is, what's the Guard and Reserve? I mean, I mean, I'm sure you've seen it. There's plenty of folks that don't know these things. And so my first effort was an education campaign to explain, why do you even want to hire these people? And there were so many advocates at Comcast, but that doesn't mean they understood. So recruiting and then getting hiring managers to interview and then hire, there's a gap there. You know, so many familiarity gaps you need to close. So that was exciting. And now we made a pledge to hire 21,000 by the end of 2021. Now, certainly COVID is going to impact that as far as a raw number. But what I'm so excited about, despite hiring being reduced pretty significantly over COVID, our percentage of military hires has stayed the same. So it's not like when you're hiring fewer, you hire fewer military. We're hiring just as many as we did. So that was very encouraging to me. I'm not sure if you're aware of what we do with digital equity. Internet Essentials, we we broadened it to support uh, veterans so that they could do their telehealth, they could apply for their VA benefits. So um, I'm really proud of that. And now, Amanda, we've started Lift Zones, which are community centers or locations where families and veterans can go to access the Internet if they don't have it at home and can't get it at home. And then also we have a program called RISE that supports small businesses um, owned by veterans and people of color and, you know, with grants and advice. And so uh, I'm just proud of the way Comcast gives back and our work in diversity and inclusion, I think, is pretty inspired. I know you just talked about um, the Color of Freedom and the Women's Memorial. We're the sponsor of that exhibit because we understand that we have to tell these stories of people of color and, you know, that they're not out there. So just like I said in the beginning of this interview, telling telling stories is critical. And so telling the story of people of color in the in the service is critical. So, so proud, so proud to um, sponsor that. Also, I think we've closed um, tremendous gaps when it comes to supporting our garden reservists, you know, making sure we make up the difference in their pay, making sure they, you know, we go well and beyond the, the law. 
And I think that was recognized. We were we were recognized as the employer, number one employer by Military Times. And that meant a lot to me because it's so much more than just a hiring number. It's a retention number. And also just what do you do to support the military community? We support military families. We support the Dole Foundation and their work with caregivers and wounded warriors. And I got to I got to see all that happen and have an incredible team, veterans, a, a team of nine folks and all but two are military. And those two have a strong military connection. One is a, was a caregiver of her father from the Vietnam era. So she understands the challenges of being a military caregiver. And our, our other non-veteran comes from a long line of military folks, legacy. And we have three garden reservists. One of them right now is deployed. So we, we walk the talk and we understand the challenges. And I can't say enough how grateful I am to Comcast because you can want to do all these things, but if you don't have a budget and people, you're not going to do it. And Dave Watson, the president of Comcast Cable, really believes in this. And when Black Lives Matter kind of surfaced, some companies sort of stepped back on their military commitment. And I was so proud of Comcast that we didn't. We we combined the two because there's plenty of people of color in the military. So how do we make those connections? We had Colin Powell on to speak to our employees. We just had Wes Moore. Do you know Wes Moore's story? Oh, I got to check. The other Wes Moore, check that one out. He's an Army veteran and has written incredible books, TED Talks. So, you know, we look for ways to integrate those stories with the military. And, you know, the military intersects just about every aspect of anything a company does. So excited that I got to do that and continue to get to do that. And so proud of the team. And you've worked with some of our teams, so you must know they're all go-getters. So very proud of Comcast and proud of the team. None of that would have, none of those things would have been possible. That's so awesome to hear. And I knew quite a bit about Comcast, but even hearing more and getting to work with your team and finding out all the things you guys are doing, it makes me even more excited for what Comcast is doing and how they're that's great. And we're, we're trying to, we're, we support our military customers also. You know, we send them cards. We know which ones are military um, related. We have a military offer so that in recognition of your service, there's certain uh, programs you're eligible for. You know, it's not just the military community. It's also customers, it's employees, and it's the military community and how best to support it. So excited. Yeah. And I feel like this question you've answered a few times with all the advice you've given, but I want to give you one more chance to give even more advice to women who are considering joining the military. I will always speak to women about, you know, their next steps and their choices. When it comes to the military, I think the advice is very similar to what I'd give any woman considering anything, college, a job, is do your research. Don't go off unprepared. Understand what you're getting into and go in with knowledge. Talk to people like you, read your book, understand why you're doing, because Amanda, you know, it's challenging. Basic training is challenging. Also, stay fit. You know, you got to stay fit. The military doesn't want folks who can't run a mile or can't do a couple of sit ups, well, not a couple, but, you know, sit-ups and push-ups and even not a change. So I would tell young women, do your research, understand your options, talk to other veterans. Now you have the chance to do that. When I joined, you think I could have talked to a fellow female that was joining the military? Absolutely not. And any guidance counselor would advise me not to join the military, I'm sure. So uh, I think women today who are considering joining the military have so many options now, and they have so many women they can reach out and talk to. 
and then be committed and let yourself go. Don't get up in arms about basic training. And because really the military is trying to kind of change your culture and your outlook to become a team. And so if you take it like that, rather than personal, personal time, they're trying to control me and I can't take this, but get why they're doing it. If you're in combat, you all have to work together. So that whole thing about there's no I in team is, is true in the military. So women need to get rid of that and be willing to give it their all. Yeah, that's such great advice. And I'm like taking notes in my head for my <laughs> my book. And I also have a Girl's Guide to the Military YouTube channel. So if women are listening and they have questions about military service, they can go on there and hear from other women about their advice and also tips for joining. Well, that's great. And Amanda, then I'm definitely connecting you to our community salutes. Those resources would be so valuable to that group that supports young people joining the military. So Glad you mentioned that about the um, YouTube channel. Thank you so much for your wisdom, for your story, for your advice. I really have loved having a chance to talk to you. I'm really excited to share your story. Well, Amanda, I said in the beginning, um, people like you are very, very important. And I know it takes a lot of your time, but I can tell you're a believer in getting stories out there. And that makes a big difference. There is power in stories. So thank you for what you're doing. And I look forward to staying connected. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Women of the Military Podcast. Do you love all things Women of the Military Podcast? Become a subscriber so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a review. It really helps people find the podcast and helps the podcast to grow. Are you still listening? You could be a part of the mission of telling the stories of military women by joining me on Patreon at patreon.com slash women of the military or you can order my book Women of the Military on Amazon. Every dollar helps to continue the work I am doing. Are you a business owner? Do you want to get your product or service in front of the Women of the Military podcast audience? Get in touch with the Women of the Military podcast team to learn more. All the links on how you can support Women of the Military podcast are located in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and for your support.